Today is Wednesday. It's August 29th, 2023. It's 241 in the afternoon. Hi, this is John Williams, and thanks for finding the Missing Rascals podcast. Tell your friends and come see us live on stage. I'll give you details on that in a minute. You can listen to me weekdays on WGN Radio from 10 to 2. I'm Austin Berg from the Illinois Policy Institute, and you can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. And I'm Eric Zorn, the editor and publisher of the Picayune Sentinel, a fine Substack newsletter that you can get by writing to me at ericzorn at gmail.com, and I'll add you to the list. Yeah, subscribe to that and then steal from it and just use all the clever topics and observations Eric has and present them as your own. And by golly, you'll have yourself some fine talk radio. I'm, I actually just started the Picayune Sentinel podcast, I hope. That's okay. <laughs> it's a critique, it's a, though, right? <laughs> no, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a review. Yeah, it's like a, it's like those podcasts that review every episode of the Gilmore Girls or something. Let's talk. Go to, back and do do every newsletter. I was talking to a, a doctor the other day. We were just chit chatting as she was uh, looking at a thing on my arm, a, a dermatologist, and, and we were talking about books we read and podcasts we listen to. And she's very busy, very focused, very driven. She listens to the New England Journal of Medicine podcast. She says the only other podcast I listen to is the summaries of the TV shows that I already watch. I thought, how is it that somebody has watched the show and is very, you know, tight for time, now finds entertainment or value in listening to other people talk about the show you've already watched? There is a daily podcast that is huge. They just had a huge show at the Vic that was sold out. It's a daily podcast of reviewing every bravo reality show of the previous night and it's daily wow it's like i think it's like a two-hour podcast or something they do impressions of all the characters and stuff but imagine that is your your day begins reviewing like five reality television shows from the previous day that's right i i would like to speak up in favor of recap podcasts and recap on news sites i really like reading those for especially for quality tv it's really fun to read like succession recaps and uh just been been reading some wire recaps and and the bear recaps just hearing what smart people have to say about these shows uh they're they're the presumption is that you've seen them so that they're they're filled with spoilers but so I never read them until after I've watched the episode. But but it's it's really interesting often, and, and it's kind of like being able to talk to a smart friend about about a show. Mo Ryan used to write some great recaps. I'm not sure if she's doing that anymore. She's writing books and so on now. But anyway, I, I, I think those are great. Reminds me a little bit of unpacking videos when those were first a thing. And I thought, why would somebody want to watch a video of somebody unpacking their iPhone? But those things got millions of views you know what i'm talking about right unboxing i was watching i I got unboxing yeah unboxing yeah i got into a a very niche category of packing videos when we got a new mattress and i was like how do they get this mattress in this box that that seems impossible uh videos of how they get the mattress in the box (laughs) those are really good highly recommend you say those like you watched more than one oh there's quite a few it's, it's like, they, do you remember the show? There's a great Discovery Channel show. I don't know if they still have it, of how things get made or yeah. how, how it's made mm-hmm, or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like that. So it looks yeah. like Play-Doh. They make the mattress look like Play-Doh, and then they wrap it up. It's crazy. Wow. I can see what you get once, Austin. But <laughs> no, watch all like, kinds say, of hey, nuances. Ha- honey, come into the living room. There's another one. 
I'm Sounds like the beginning of a how-to with John Wilson episode where he just says, okay, yeah. here's the most inane thing, like how to find a public toilet or how to clean your ear, a couple of episodes from this year's season, this season, and um, and then he goes places. And he is – if you haven't watched How-To with John Wilson, look at that. That is – TV you have never seen before. <laughs> that is some interesting stuff. Um, by the way, our podcast uh, is going to be recorded at Second City. It's going to be Eric uh, in September on Tuesday the 29th? 6th. 26th. 6th. Tuesday the 26th, 6 to 8 p.m. Depending on when you're listening to this, I will just say it this way. Tomorrow at 9 a.m., that is Thursday at 9 a.m., August 30th, tickets will go on sale. Starting at 9 in the morning, go to WGNRadio.com slash Rascals. It'll link you right to the Second City, and you can buy tickets for the Missing Rascals podcast. Or we're going to record it from 6 to 8 p.m. We'll be up on stage, and I think we'll have enough time afterwards to answer questions. So really come. It'll be a lot of fun, I think. We would love to see who you people are that listen to this podcast. You get a chance to watch, have a beer, have a snack. You can purchase those at Second City. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Shake hands with Brandon Pope. Brandon will be there. Yeah. John Hansen will be as well. After party will be at Old Town Alehouse. I'll be hosting that. All right. So the Chicago White Sox are having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad season and month and week. And maybe the worst day of all was last Friday when, and I'm just going to tell you what I know, as of 2.47 in the afternoon on Wednesday the 29th, because we don't know that much, but... As we are some five days after the shooting, this is what I know, decidedly incomplete. It appears that two people suffered gunshot wounds during the game in the fourth inning. I'm not sure who shot them or where the shot came from or how many shots total were fired or if the shooting or shootings were intentional. I don't know if the police know the answer to these questions. And while I have heard why the game was allowed to continue, I'm not sure I understand the reasoning in that. Now, here's what I am sure of. But think about that. The game went on. At first, it didn't hit me as something all that out of the ordinary. You know, I'm so used to shootings on the south side, and I heard there was a shooting at the Sox Park at the game, and I went, ah, that's the south side. And then I started to think about it. Sean, really? No, really. At first blush, it didn't jump out at me as, holy cow, stop the train. But then think about it. 20,000 people in the stands, players on the field, someone has a gun, it's been fired, two people are hit, the game from the fourth inning on went on. They didn't have the music show afterwards, but that happened. Eric, it jumped out at you. A shooting at a ballpark? Absolutely. It's, yes. it's one of these nightmares that you have about these incredibly crowded arenas and what uh, incredibly target-rich environments they would be. And so, yeah, I was really uh, horrified to hear about that because, I mean, at first we didn't know anything about where the the shots had come from. I said we still don't. Right. But but uh, no, I I think the venue is really important. I saw some there were some people who were saying, like, ah, people get shot all the time on the south side. Why are you picking on this? Is that because there are a bunch of white suburbanites in in the stands? And and I know I don't think it's that at all. I think it has to do with the fact that that it is such a. Uh, a, a place of vulnerability when you're in a crowd like that. You're, you know, one of the reasons they apparently didn't evacuate was they thought that uh, it would have created a stampede that could have harmed people. They canceled the concert after the game, though, right? Yep. And are they saying that that was because of the shooting, or are they saying that that was for other reasons? No, it's because of the shooting. Right. So I, that's what I, that's the logic that I don't understand is why have the 
why cancel the concert but play the last five innings of the game? I answered that with certainty in my voice because I, th- I thought I read that somewhere when the police chief was talking about it or the interim superintendent. But I here's the thing. This story has taken on another life, and that is the mayor doesn't want to say much about it. I don't know who's supposed to be saying something about it. It's CPD, but they haven't. The White Sox don't want to talk about it. Does it strike you guys as exceptional that five days afterwards, we don't know very much about this? And when I brought that up on the radio, my colleague Steve Bertrand, who does news and has worked with us on The Mincing Rascals before, said, well, don't assume that just because you don't know all of these answers that the police don't. Like maybe they're making their case or they're doing their investigation. And I said, well, then at least tell me that you do. Tell me that we've got a better handle on how this happened. I think the big speculation out there is that it was the gun of an off-duty police officer who was allowed to take it in. So it's not as maybe dangerous a scenario as you would imagine. But then tell me that, because I'm just making stuff up right now. Of course, the other speculation that's out there is that it was the woman's own gun I think I read it, and I'm not going to say which site I read it on because I don't remember and I don't want to impugn any sites, but that she smuggled the gun in, uh, hiding it in the rolls of fat on her stomach or something like that. And that was a, the there was an ESPN reporter that, that tweeted that. But that yeah. was what sources told her. <laughs> said, said reportedly, and somebody else tweeted, reportedly is doing a lot of work here. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, <laughs> but. But but I mean the idea that, that still it's, doesn't make sense, right? I mean, well, fact it does doesn't, a little bit. Well, no, well, the, the, the metal detector would still pick up a gun. Have you ever been through a metal detector and it goes off and the wand also goes off, but then they pat you down in that that place and it turns out to be nothing, and then you walk right through? Yeah, that that, that happens, right? But and the other thing, to Eric's point, was Fox thirty two had footage. I'm sure other stations had it as well, where the mayor was pulling the police chief sort of off the mic when he was being asked questions about it, which I thought was also a very, to your point, John, of um, kind of fueling more speculation is that it seems like they're being, they're not being forthcoming um, about what they do know. And that's fueling very crazy rumors. Well, I just don't understand how you could have someone shot and have no one in the entire stadium hear the shot unless it was hidden in her clothes somehow or someone's clothes. I mean, that that theory makes sense. The fact that she might have gotten it through the metal detector, I guess video shows that she went right through the, the uh, security screening without, without having to be stopped. That makes sense to me. I, I'm not saying that that's what happened. I'm just saying that of all the theories that are put forth, the idea of a, of a shot being fired from a distance, like just over the, you know, over the the grandstand and into the, into the bleacher. Yeah, that's, was that sitting. was a theory, too, that it came from outside that, the ballpark. The idea that someone, like, say, from across the stadium had fired a gun and that no one heard it, that doesn't that makes the least sense to me. Um, the idea that this could have been a gun that was secreted on, on someone's person that went off by mistake and created these non-life-threatening injuries yeah. seems more plausible. Um, and, of course, the other question is, what, why didn't they stop the game when this happened? What did they know? Uh, what did Mayor Johnson say? He's he's refused to say whether he was consulted and what he had to say when he when he when they heard about this. Um, well, on it, the it's gr- just a yeah, go ahead. Well, no, on the ground. I mean, at the moment, I don't think you consult. You're not suggesting that the mayor should have been consulted during the game about what to do, right? It's the fourth inning. I think that's 
a local call. My understanding is the police did suggest that the game be stopped, but were persuaded otherwise, either because they just didn't know what happened or they didn't want to create a panic. And at least we have a logical stop in the ninth inning or whenever the game is over. And now we'll just say that for technical reasons, the concert has been canceled. I don't know that the mayor needs to be brought in on that, but somebody needs to own the information. I know they're working on it, but you know what I mean? Give me some confidence that it's not going to happen again. I don't have any confidence that it's not going to happen again because I just don't know anything. Reportedly, the phrase... uh the concert is being postponed for technical reasons is a good i think that's technically true is that a technical reason if a gun discharges in, our in reporter described it as a white lie but a beneficial one i'm okay with fibbing about something like that i i, I would totally support that because like i say if you say there's been gunfire in the stands so or canceling the game People are not going to make their leisurely way out of the stadium. And that could result – I mean, that, that could have really had a tragic result. I, I I would say, look, we're canceling the concert. You'll find out why later, kind of. Uh, that, that makes sense to me. Yeah, and I don't know exactly – I don't know that they have a kind of a spreadsheet with all the eventualities for the PA announcer. You know, what happens if we have to cancel the game because of gunfire? But – that's a delicate message to put up on the, on, the, on the Jumbotron and then announce to everybody. I don't know how you say it. Do you say, ladies and gentlemen, the game is being canceled because of gunfire in the stands? No. Do you say the game is being canceled and we're not going to say why? That Maybe that creates such speculation that you're going to incite your own kind of panic. Maybe a technical difficulty, but I mean, the players are on the field. <laughs> There's no technical thing needed. So I don't know how you how you word that cancellation of the game. Uh, weather, the airlines get away with that, but you can't lie about the weather. It's right there. You're probably right that they haven't gamed it all out, and maybe they needed to have done that. Uh, I don't even know what – does anyone remember what inning it was? Was fourth. the game – was it, middle of the fourth. It was the fourth, fourth inning, so it wasn't even an official game. And so you wonder whether – any financial considerations uh, were in play, where they thought, well, you know, if we if we stop this game now, we're going to have to replay it at some point, which means we're going to have to. Boy, I hope that's not pay part all. Of the thing. We have to pay everybody who is working today, then we have to pay them again for the for the next game. I don't know. I mean, who knows what kind of thinking goes on in their in their minds? It's it's not like the White Sox were. Uh, were they who are they playing the A's? I mean, these are two teams that are going absolutely nowhere. You could just pretend that the game never happened and and (laughs) nobody would notice or complain i do take your point though eric about security at a place how could a gun get in there because when i go to a depaul game or i go to more depaul games than any other team but a Sox or cubs game there's somebody you walk through the thing it goes beep they go stand over there they wand you a little bit it all seems to be kind of pro forma, doesn't it? Like, okay, just all right, let's just find a way to get this person in there rather than let's discover if there's a gun. But what are the chances there's really going to be a gun? That just seems to never happen. And sometimes the people that are doing those jobs, I, I don't know what their motivation or skill levels are. It seems to me like sometimes they're people that took a job. I don't know what their skill set is or responsibilities are. So it just seems to be like this little dance we do to get into the ballparks i could see them just saying yeah you're fine and it's also possible I mean, this woman was uh, you know a, a woman in her 40s looks like a, i guess she's a school teacher or something like that i mean i'm guessing that their antenna Ooh, were, not, were not up right when when someone walks in like that i mean if there if, if there's like uh say uh, a younger man or something they might 
be much more inclined to search them again or search them harder. I, I don't know. You're, you're absolutely right. I don't know what the what the qualifications are, how much training they get. I'm guessing they're not paid all that well, and I'm guessing part of their instructions is to make sure that the line keeps moving. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. Imagine. I mean, heck, we tell people that work at Walgreens or Target if somebody is stealing. Do not confront them. I wonder if there's a question if the protocol is to let the person in. I don't know. Really, here's what we keep coming back to in this dissection of this story. We don't know the answer to what I think are some pretty fair questions. They don't need to give up the case for me. And and ultimately, I think this falls on the mayor's office. Brandon Johnson didn't do a swell job of communicating to us why Allison Arwetty was let go. I asked him about that again the other day, and we didn't get anywhere on that. He said that to reveal why Allison Arwetty was released from her job and how that was handled, why and how it was handled, for him to tell us would be unethical. And he is not into unethical communication. But that was his word. I don't even know what the ethic is you're talking about. Yeah, and and to that point, his floor leader, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, I believe Eric Zorn pointed this out in his newsletter, was all over the Ben Jarofsky show talking about all of the reasons why she was fired because she her of her neoliberal policies and the fact that she wanted public-private mental health institutions instead of fully publicly funded mental health institutions. So why is that not unethical under the same... Yeah, but it wasn't yeah, the mayor. Standard. Maybe that's the mayor's policy, but not the people who are going to speak for him. I always get Margaret Thatcher and Allison already mixed up, so <laughs> you don't ask me. You know, but but look, if it's unethical to talk about why you fired somebody, then was it ethical for him to, during the campaign, say he was going to fire her? I mean, I don't understand where his ethical and moral compass is that he can't talk about these things. And, and again, this is not some low-level employee who you let go because you think they might be stealing office supplies. This is a policy dispute, and we don't really even know what his his overall policy is on public health. Uh, we know where he is on the uh, mental health clinics, and we know that he didn't like the way she handled things when the, the schools were uh, closed and she wanted to have them reopen. But I I think that you know his when he when he invokes morality here I don't I don't buy it. Yeah. Um man we asked him about it and he said that and then he just didn't want to talk about it any further. And there was another point I was going to make about the way he handled that. Oh yeah. So he said and at the essentially what he was saying was I'm not going to bash somebody in hindsight. I'm not going to sit here and criticize her and say why she was bad without her here to defend herself. I'm looking forward not backwards. And to that we said, well Mr. Mayor, we're not asking you to criticize her. We're giving you a chance to apologize for the way you handled it or just illuminate it. Just tell us why you did it. But he said no, that's that's all you're getting out of me. Okay, so that was maybe the first real management crisis he had but here's now the latest version of that this is what happens when you want to be mayor this thing's landed in your lap how are you going to handle this am i austin making too much out of this or no no i think the fact that there was media asking questions to the police chief and the mayor basically tugged him by the back of his shirt tugged maybe as a nudged him uh, escorted I him i didn't see that off the do you think that's really what was going on there it was it, it very much seemed like he made it clear that questions were over and sort of gestured to the chief of police that uh it was time to go and that reinforces what i think is a has been a uh, systemic problem with public safety in chicago which is that 
rather than being focused on professionalism and policing, we sort of have political policing. And that goes back to, uh, you know, Eddie Johnson being picked, handpicked by uh, uh, Mayor Emanuel and then being found uh, incapacitated in a in a running car. Um, too often, there is sort of a political hand over the police department when there should be really a professional managerial standard set kind of outside and independent of the mayor's office. And when you get uh, when you see that any kind of pull, uh, uh, push or pull on policing from a political figure like the mayor, you start to question the narrative that is being presented by police and whether that narrative is being uh, portrayed in the interests of public safety or if it's being portrayed in the interests of the mayor's image or uh, some other consideration. People are going to speculate. They're going to criticize. This thing takes on a life of its own unless you get in front of it. And five days in now, nobody has assured the public that they know what happened, or are nor are they answering questions about it. And at the end of the day, a gun was fired in the ballpark. That's the real crime or concern here. But the the, the bigger issue now has become this issue of transparency or leadership that the mayor should be owning. I don't even think he's handled Friday morning swim club that well. <laughs> and that's 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 a way down on the list of things for the mayor to handle. But actually, that came up in our interview with him last week, too. We asked him about Friday swim club. Friday swim club spontaneously evolved during the pandemic when some people decided to meet at Montrose Beach and jump in the water and swim. Uh, the lake at times was closed, but obviously it's since opened up. And over time, more and more people have sort of spontaneously, organically just said, hey, let's all meet at Montrose Friday morning at 8 a.m. or 7 a.m. I think it's 8 a.m. and we'll all jump in the water and we'll bring our floaties and swim around for just a little bit. It's not an organized swim. It's not sanctioned. The park district isn't on board. And in fact, they're breaking some rules there, like you're not supposed to have floaties in the lake, and you're not supposed to swim until lifeguards are posted somewhere and lifeguards aren't there. But nobody's been injured, nobody's drowned, and it's grown to a, cr- a cast of a few thousand people. And the pictures and videos that come out just look like the coolest thing. Like, how awesome is this? People just convening and jumping in our great lake. The city is worried that it's not sanctioned. The park district is worried. Their lifeguards aren't there. And so the mayor and city officials have now pulled back on social media, retweeting or reposting these cool things. And two weeks ago, the cops showed up and they said, okay, well, first of all, the organizers of it posted a video saying, hey, don't anybody go to Friday Swim Club because we're not supposed to do that. And then literally at the end, they winked at the camera. And that was the end of their post. Folks showed up. Now they've posted a new video saying, okay, really, don't go. (laughs) We're not endorsing this. It sounds like, Austin, they're afraid they're going to get into legal trouble. The mayor's – the point about the mayor with this is interesting because at the outset of Friday Morning Swim Club, he and I think Choose Chicago or some other tourism arm retweeted stuff that the swim club was doing, saying, like, look how cool Chicago is. Look at this. And then next thing you know, the organizers are like – yeah, we can't get a clear answer from the park district about anything. Uh, you know, that we haven't been able to talk to them. And then all of a sudden it gets canceled. And I think it is a beautiful event. I think any city would love to have free positive marketing like a Friday morning swim club that you show the nation about how cool your city is. And uh, those kinds of spontaneous things end up being part of the cultural fabric that can really define 
an entire city. And I was actually just thinking about this because this summer I was in Helsinki in Finland and I went to something called Sampa Sauna, which is an anarchist sauna that these people built on the seaside. And they kept building it, they kept building it, and it kept getting torn down and torn down by the city because I think it was on city-owned land. And eventually it became so popular that uh, the city was forced to say, well, now it's like a cultural landmark, so we're going to keep it. And it's all volunteer run and it's all ages and it's uh, open 24-7. It's so cool. And this is similarly the case. Like, I don't think I'm going to go sit on a floaty with a thousand other people, but that's great marketing for the city of Chicago and God bless them for doing it. It seems great. I heard from people that came in from the suburbs for it too. I mean, it wasn't just Chicagoans, but tell me uh, truer or better publicity we could have for don't be afraid to come into the city. It's fun. Look at all these people. You know, it's, it, 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 it wasn't the city saying we're safe. It was the people saying we're safe. We're having fun. Well, if it's an issue of lifeguards, too, I, I've read that there are like 3,000 people there. And yeah. you took up a collection that everybody throw two bucks into the hat and we'll hire 10 lifeguards for the two hours or however long it goes on. And the park district will say, we'll issue a waiver on floaties. I'm not exactly sure what the brief is against floaties, but yeah. we'll, we'll waive the floaty ban for two hours. We'll pay eight lifeguards to stand at, at the shore yep. and, and let this happen. It just seems, you know, I, I mean, it, it really seems very tone deaf of the park district and the police department, the mayor's office, everybody else to crack down on this. They did. But, uh, um, it'll be better just so, I mean, it's been going on for a while. Just you could ignore it or you could say, let's look, let's, let's make this official and, uh, and, and pass the hat or just ask everybody coming in to, as, as they walk into the beach, Hey, look, you know, I mean, if, if it's 3000 people, I'll bet, bet $3,000 easily cover enough lifeguards. For, 10 lifeguards, for $30 an hour. I don't know what you pay them, but it seemed to me like you could come up with the coin. It's only two hours. It's only one day a week without getting too far into the weeds. This is, I think, the real complication. If somebody drowned or got injured, the city would get sued for a zillion dollars. The place where they swim, has it's a concrete lip to the water. It's not a beach that you wade out into. You jump into water that's about eight feet deep or whatever, and you swim and float around. To get out of the water, you've jumped over this lip, but it's pretty steep lip. You're not going to hoist yourself out. So 3,000 people now have to make their way back to just a few ladders that are built into the side. So people are treading water, treading water, treading water, waiting for somebody else in their their rubber duck around their waist to get out of the water. Now, another person. And so some people have to float for a while. And I'm thinking, okay, more ladders. I don't know. (laughs) This is a problem to solve. I'm not sure it's a problem to cancel the thing. That's the reason they have floaties is because it can take a long time to get back up onto the land. So you sit and chill out on your floaty, right? But the idea that, you know... This isn't a crowd of sort of drunken, disorderly people. These are people who are getting up early on a Friday morning to not be on their phone and go swim in the lake. Uh, you think there are like maybe of the 3,000, 2,500 of them that are very strong swimmers and could help someone in their three feet next to them if they're saying help? Like it, the safety concern is just so ridiculous to me. And Absolutely, there could be some solution where you say, well, by participating in this event, you are waiving any any right to, you know, suing the, the city of Chicago or something like that. It's something to be creative and uh, uh, 
take advantage of this organic thing that has happened. And instead, it's like a reactive, defensive. Why didn't you talk to the right person at City Hall before doing this and mm-hmm, stuff? And it's mm-hmm. just like it's it's part of the political culture here that's that's really sad. And when people are like, well, yeah, I like being able to, you know, <laughs> call up my alderman and get a get a trash can or fix a pothole or something. It's like this is sort of the flip side of that of the political culture, which is that it breeds this kind of officiousness and uh, defensiveness and uh, sort of a stale mentality towards things that are happening in the city uh, and that the government always needs to have some kind of hand in it. And, and it, it, you just made thousands of people sad. You made the city worse for thousands of people who were having fun. I, th- I call it the committee of no, where yeah. at the radio station we say, hey, we got an idea. And the posture for a lot of people is, well, here's why we really shouldn't or can't do that instead of that's out of the box. How do we make it happen? And the city doesn't seem to have that posture. But I will grant them this because you know how I feel about this. I think they need to figure it out. But so help me. If one person drowns or breaks their ankle trying to get out of the water and they sue the city, it would seem to me like the solution, though, isn't to look away and ask for waivers, but to manage it so that that doesn't happen. You know, put 10 canoes out there, rowboats. They don't go out very far. The people go out maybe 30, 40 feet, but it's so cool to see. And they're surrounded by flotation devices. (laughs) That's the other, like, it's, you couldn't have a safer. This is true. Thousands of flotation devices in the water. They're not doing deep sea diving. They're not doing a bunch of drugs. It's perfectly bright outside. Everyone's friendly. You couldn't have asked for a safer. There's no alcohol involved either. It's not no, like it's not it's like coffee. the playpen. I know they have coffee. It's mildly caffeinated people who want to swim. I know none of us are lawyers here, but I'm actually curious whether the city, whether someone could successfully sue the city, based on looking the other way when people are swimming in the lake where they're not supposed to. There are certainly other places along the waterfront where people jump in the water where they're not supposed to, and they're not plucked out of the water and arrested. So I'm wondering, and, and, and I'm sure occasionally some of those people drown, is the city on the hook for that? Uh, I don't right. know. There's, I don't, it's uh, clearly marked that you're not supposed to swim there, which is also like a, a wide, widely flouted rule. But you'd think that'd give the city a lot of protection, the fact that it's marked as there's no lifeguard. Just so you know, there's no lifeguards here. If, if, some, if, if you're in trouble, you're swimming at your own risk, right? Um, so it seems, I don't know. I'm, I'm not an expert in in. Well, wasn't uh, as a this defense an, lawyer for municipal governance? Wasn't this an issue with the uh, throw rings? You know, the life preservers at one of the north north beaches in the city, where the people were always swimming. The park district had to decide if we're going to put more life preservers there, which would maybe save somebody, but it also would be a tacit approval of the swimming because we know you're swimming, so here's the way to swim safe. Rather, their their impulse was they took the preservers down, as I recall, because they said, no, we don't want you swimming here, and not only do we not want you to, we're not going to be engaged in trying to safeguard you because you shouldn't be there to begin with. So then they took – but then – Ultimately, uh, the life preservers, as I recall, were were put back because people said, no, we want life preservers here because people are going to swim here. Isn't that kind of like the safe needle sites or the having people have Narcan easily available? That Yeah, yeah kind of. That, you're, you're, that you're, you're acknowledging that people are going to do this and you don't want them to die. 
Uh, and so you want to, I mean, I, I think they did put those life preservers back. Back, yeah, and, right. And, and, uh, and that makes a lot of sense. And I, you know, it's going to happen. You just have to bow to reality at some point. In the Picayune Sentinel, Eric Zorn, I thought, had an interesting take on mugshots. Now, we didn't talk about the president's mugshot on last week's pod, right, guys? Eric, just walk me through what the logic is. You said in the Picayune Sentinel that you don't think that mugshots are all that useful, and you don't think that we should be publishing them. Is that right? My line on this is if a picture is worth a thousand words, then uh, a set of mugshots is worth 2,000 words, and most of them are synonyms for guilty, that you catch people at their most frightened, humiliated, uh, often frazzled moment, and you take a picture of them, and then you post it online, and nobody looks innocent in a police booking photo. And the problem is, of course, that they are presumed innocent at the point at the time those pictures are taken. And these photos now can live forever on the Internet. So someone searches for Austin Berg, they're going to come up with his his uh, the when he's busted for swimming illegally along the lake. And that's going to be the first thing they find. They will find out about all his professional accomplishments <laughs> or they'll just stop or they'll just stop looking. They'll say this guy, this guy. So. Um, so I, I, I think that only in rare circumstances should should photos be be published or, or posted, and, and you know those can be when there's confusion, when there's when you know there's a, a, a John Williams is booked uh, and accused of a crime. It's important to say, well, this is not John Williams of WGN. This is John Williams uh, who lives the composer. Uh, it was the yeah, guy from this, Boston who was the the, the scofflaw. Yeah, he's yeah, he's bad news. But you know, so, so that to, to differentiate between people with similar names, uh, sometimes they use the mug shots later for wanted posters when people skip skip out on trials and so on. So so there's a reason to take them, and there's a reason to have them there, and occasionally there is a reason to publish them. But in general, I think they shouldn't be. And I know that there are some states where they have have. Uh, Sort of classified them in the same way that they classify crime scene photos, and saying that these are these are no longer uh, subject to public records requests. So we don't consider them to be to be relevant, and I, that might be the way to go. I'm, I know on the radio the other day, John, I was saying that I didn't think that there should be a law against it, but it might be that there ought to be a law with some exceptions written into it for certain kinds of cases. But that you know, when you have you know these these booking photos. Nick Nolte is the classic one, the uh, the actor who was just looked terrible. He busted for I forget what it was. I don't want to say because uh, I don't remember, uh, but he just looked awful. And so this was used just to, to humiliate him. And, uh, you know, if, if, if humiliation if humiliation is the idea, then I think mugshots should not be used. And what's interesting about the states that have reformed this is that they're all over the map politically. So it's Arkansas, Florida, and Montana, and Louisiana was the most recent one. But then also New York and California have restricted the use of these for exactly the reasons Eric said. And the example that I give to people is just think about the worst thing you've ever done in your life. Everybody has something like that, that they cringe when they think about whether it was just, you know, you treated someone poorly or you made a really bad decision. And then imagine there was someone there with a camera flashing you in the face and uh, a big flash in your face. And then that picture is online forever. And I've had close, a very close friend who struggled with addiction and reached a total low point in her life. And, now she has to live with everybody seeing that, seeing a phys- seeing a photo representation of that, 
taken by a law enforcement agency for and, and published for no clear purpose of public safety. And in fact, it, it harms public safety and uh, because oftentimes it is rubbing salt in the wound of people who are already dealing with very difficult things. Now, of course, there's horrible uh, criminals that, that uh, uh, you know, that maybe that wouldn't be a good argument for. And to Eric's point, you can release their mugshot if they become a fugitive at some point and you need people to be able to uh, to recognize them. But for the most part, these were not invented to induce shame. They were invented as a record-keeping device, and they've become like a, a cottage industry. And mm-hmm. there's people who make lots of money publishing mugshots or getting them wiped from the record too, right? Uh, or, or, you know, telling people to not publish them or, or strong-arming people into not publishing them. So I do think it that's something that maybe in 30 years we will look back on and it will seem kind of barbaric that we do publish them. Now, obviously, we're talking about Donald Trump's mugshot, or at least that's what brings this conversation to light, because after he was booked in Fulton County, that mugshot was released. And I thought that that mugshot played to his advantage. In a way, the way Jane Fonda's mugshot in, what was it, 1970, when she was arrested and held up her fist in protest, you can use that for your purposes. Donald Trump made $7 million in the days after. It might have even been the day, but certainly a week after. No, it hasn't been a week. The next day, he raised another $7 million based on the power of that mugshot. In fact, his own campaign is selling that mugshot on cozies and um, mugs and T-shirts, so they saw it as something that victimized him. And by the way, it was a really good picture of him. He had a beautiful red tie, white shirt, blue jacket. You know the uniform. It was symmetrical. Everything looked so perfect in that photo. I thought it was photoshopped or colorized or made up. It was a pretty good picture of him scowling at the camera, like, how dare they? In fact, He's the one that then is with his merch now saying, never give up. Or never surrender. Never surrender. Never surrender. So it's working to his advantage. It's sort of beside the point Eric's making, but it's interesting that it can go both ways. Totally. You have some people who have icon- – uh, t- the one I always think about is uh, Tim Allen, who, who was not famous at the time. But Tim Allen, the guy who played the Santa Claus and the, the stand-up comedian, he has a sure. mugshot from when he was, a, a, I think, a pretty big-time cocaine dealer in michigan and there's like i think a detroit police photo of him that's a mugshot that has probably served him well later in his career it's become like kind of a meme how does it serve him well because he looks very cool no kidding sort of looks like a 70s guy with a a mustache and uh you know like a cool collared shirt yeah martin luther king's mugshot served his purpose well see what the see how they're persecuting and prosecuting me so it it's interesting how that goes but i got to say eric as you talked about it in this podcast on your uh, newsletter and on the radio i think you're right that we look at those pictures or use them punitively it's like that'll teach him uh, by golly donald trump will get his picture and he'll have he'll have to suffer the indignity of a mugshot that'll teach him you know and if they look terrible well ha then they shouldn't have gotten themselves into this pickle how many people who have their mugshots taken are proven to be not guilty for crying out loud so i think a lot of us just have in our mind that well that's the price you pay when really you shouldn't have to be paying any price at that particular juncture if the photo serves no purpose. Well, I think that they should take the photos for sure. I'm not sure that the public needs to have access to them. Uh, I think that there is uh, that there is a presumption of guilt 
in the publication of those photos and that in general it's not a good it's there's not a good reason to publish them would you publish would you have published donald trump's mugshot I no, I don't think I would. Uh, actually, for for a different reason, because I feel like he's it's propaganda for him would be the reason. But I wouldn't have published like Rudy Giuliani's mugshot. Like, what's we all know what Rudy Giuliani looks like. Yeah, I want to see Rudy Giuliani's mugshot, which has no bearing in whether or not I guess it should be published or not. But I mean, I don't like Rudy Giuliani, and I think it was. But a that, and that's the point, though, John, is because there is there, whatever side it could say it was, you know, someone on the left. It's like it. It serves as a punishment before anyone has been convicted of anything. 100%. I that's mean, I'm, I'm, I'm only copping to that, Austin. It's a weak argument, and I shouldn't feel that way. I think that's where we all came to it, and I'm recalculating on that. But I do think Donald Trump, regardless of whether or not he weaponizes that picture or uses it for campaign finance, that's a bona fide news moment that a former president has been booked on these charges. We all know what Donald Trump looks like. But I think that his pose and the fact that he had to be treated like every other American, because we're wondering to what degree the president should be treated like other Americans in criminal proceedings, I think that was instructive, illustrative anyway. I, Austin, would you have published the picture of Trump if you were in a position to decide his mugshot? No. Ah, no, Jesus. I don't think so. I'm doing well, well, just, I'm better than this. Literally, no, it's, it's like uh, – um, and you should apply. I think it should be applied evenly across the board. If the person isn't a fugitive and there's no public uh, safety purpose for releasing it, I think it's a total overreach of of government authority. Um, well, but again, right, it's but, not. Okay. But yeah. in Georgia, the law is that everybody gets a mugshot taken. I mean, they weren't treating Donald right. Trump. Any I mean, I wouldn't. I would fall right. I would follow the law in the case of Georgia. If I could, if I decided the law, it would be that no, you don't release uh, Donald Trump's mugshot or anybody else's unless there's a compelling public safety reason to do so. To which I think Eric then said, "All right, but then it's incumbent upon the journalists, if it's the law, to take the picture to not repurpose the picture." What world are you living in that you think that's not going to be clear? clickbait for every site in america oh it's clickbait for sure but is it i mean yeah a lot of things are clickbait though i mean you you have topless photos are clickbait it's (laughs) i don't think that's an excuse to run anything Mm. and i feel like there has been sort of a shift in terms of have larger news organizations stopped publishing names of of mass shooters or or scaled that back that has been sort of a little I don't bit mention of a shift, them. Right? I, we we talked about the highland park shooting and i didn't reference their name in this podcast and i haven't on the air yeah it's and that was like a norm that kind of changed and i think mugshots could be sort of the same thing is that like no self-respecting publication would be publishing such a thing right and of course you could if you look in the corners of the internet you can find anything but um Maybe our institution should be a little more responsible than to to amplify that. I don't know that I'm above the fray, but I do think that when you announce the names of the shooters, that that just gives them a level of fame that subsequent shooters might aspire to. That's my only reason for it. I'm not worried so much about the shame, the family, or indignity they suffer by having their kid's name put out there, and then they got to put up with that crap. It's hard enough for them as it is, although I think that's a fair consideration as well. But I think it just fuels the fire that these kids must be feeding on something, and the notoriety that comes with a mass shooter must perversely somehow be part of the equation when they decide, am I going to bring that gun to school or not? So we said in the video pre-roll of today's podcast that we could talk at some length, but we aren't and haven't. But I just will wrap it up today, maybe, talking a little bit about the Republican field and where they all stand. I did want to talk about the uh, Tim Mapes 
story and the prosecution conviction, and now we're awaiting the sentencing of Mike Madigan's right-hand man. But I wanted to do so with either Jason Meisner or Ray Long, one of the reporters that have followed that story in great detail, because there's just so many details to that that I thought maybe we could still push that off to next week. He doesn't get sentenced until January. I think it's it's smart because I've only followed the trial through what Ray and Jason wrote, so I wouldn't be able to offer much of anything besides that. And, yeah. And uh, they were in the courtroom, so. They they were. It is, but the, to me, one of the most fascinating things about it is that this guy was granted immunity. They said, just tell the truth, and we won't press charges against you. You won't go to jail. Now, tell us what happened. And then he just starts lying. And they, three times in one of the interviews, said, if you're lying to us, you'll go to jail. I mean, they gave him, talk about some safety rings. They kept throwing him life preservers, and the guy I don't know what Mike Madigan's magnetism is, but this guy lied for him under oath, found guilty on every one of those lies, and he could go to jail for 25 years. <laughs> yeah, a process crime. And it's it, there are also questions that when asked, you know the people asking them already have the answer to those questions. Yeah. So it's not like you're going to trick them. They're asking them precisely to do this, uh, and he did it anyway. I think the other thing, I know we'll talk about this next week or some week thereafter, but the other thing was he wasn't like saying I was at the store when, in fact, we knew you were at the gas station. He was saying I don't remember where I was, which I think a lot of people think you can get away with. You just you see people under oath do that all the time. But no, they said uh, these are significant enough events. You have to have had some memory of it. And the jury agreed. Six men and six women said, yeah, he had to have known. He was lying about not knowing under immunity. I just I just think, wow, that has got to be the dumbest play I've ever heard. Eric, just in general, have you reshuffled the deck on the Republican candidates for president since we spoke last? Well, let's see. I forget where I was when we spoke last. I mean, I don't think there's a whole lot of doubt still that Trump, Trump one get the going to get the nomination. Who's number two? Uh, I, well, I, I number two, I think is, is I, my my guess right now is Nikki Haley. She did much better in that debate than most people had expected. And Ramaswamy came off. Vivek Ramaswamy came off as uh, a bit of an oddball and very aggressive, which uh, means that he's probably in line for the vice presidential pick. Uh, Pence did better than people thought, but I don't think Mike Pence is ever going to be president. So I would say Nikki Haley and and Tim Scott uh, didn't really show up at that debate is what uh, the uh, the consensus. Not a lot of quotes from him afterwards. Not that that should, maybe that's a good thing. You know, he wasn't throwing off prepackaged lines and being combative, but he sort of became invisible in the process. So Eric Scott, Trump won. I'm not even sure what this means. Haley, two. And who do you think number three is? I'm not asking your recollection of the current polling on it, but just you saw Nikki Haley did pretty well, and then you put Vivek at number three. I know you don't love any of these people, but would he be your number three right now, Eric? Maybe he'd be number two, and Scott Tim Scott would be number three. I mean, I think that both Scott and, and Ramaswamy have room to grow. Uh, Haley does, too. Yeah, that's uh, a good way to put I, it. I, I, I don't think... I, 
don't think Pence and the others, uh, Chris Christie and those folks, I, I just don't think they're going to be going anywhere, given the electorate and how they feel about Pence and how they feel about Christie. Maybe that's the way to think about it, Austin. Like, who has the most upside here? Uh, not Trump, mm-hmm. but he's already number one by a landslide. Mm-hmm. Who do you think positioned themselves higher on the ladder? I don't know about in the last week, but there was a good core strategies poll that came out today in Illinois, just of Illinois Republican primary voters, uh, and they're a GOP pollster and it has trump by 54 percent with trump so by far you know running away with it in illinois Number two is De- in illinois wow and desantis is second so desantis is 10 percent. then it goes haley christie pence scott ramaswamy all six or five six percent or five percent hmm. but what was really interesting is they also asked who would be your pick for the nominee without trump so if trump wasn't running and when they asked that DeSantis was number one with 26%, but then number two was actually Ramaswamy, 16%. So he clearly, I mean, had the huge, the, the biggest jump out of anyone after that debate, uh, because he does present well in that context. But, um, it was DeSantis, Ramaswamy, Pence, Haley, Scott, um, uh, in the top five for the, the nominee without Trump. I think DeSantis, if I were to, to have a guess, I think Ramaswamy will probably fade a bit over the next couple months. And DeSantis has hit such a low that he kind of has nowhere to go but up. <laughs> he is, uh, you know, very cynically going to be in the news because of this massive uh, hurricane that's hitting Florida. And he's going to be uh, leading in that context. And I think that will, um, you know, politically be be uh, be good for him, which is a crazy thing to say about a natural disaster. But he's. Uh, he's going to be get, receiving a lot of probably positive media coverage out of that. And he does seem to have switched his messaging a little bit uh, from trying to run to the right of Trump to saying, listen, uh, this guy won once, but he cannot win again. I think I can win. The number one thing you should be thinking about when you're voting is who can beat Joe Biden. I know that I can do that. And they're afraid of running against me. You should vote for me because I can win. Uh, and he started saying that a lot more in interviews. And I think he can expect to, uh, if that message gets out, he can expect to improve. Donald Trump said today that he thinks Vivek would make a good vice president. That was Trump today saying Vivek Ramaswamy would make a good vice president, which sort of makes sense since Ramaswamy has been aping a lot of the language and views of Donald Trump. He's even maybe more to the right. Not only is he that extreme or extraordinary, but he's a little better at it, a little more polished than Donald Trump is in delivering his message. So if Trump were unavailable, you do see a lot of room for Vivek to grow there. Or if Trump is the candidate, I wonder if he's too similar. You know, if you're Donald Trump, you don't need Vivek Ramaswamy. You're already Donald Trump. Maybe a Nikki Haley or somebody like that would be a better running mate for you. By the way, did you get your tickets for Bob Dylan when he comes to town, Austin? At the He texted me about that. Yeah. I feel like I really do want to see him. October, three, also, three dates in October downtown. Yeah, three nights. I probably will go. Uh, the thing about this tour is, though, he plays the same, So I think it's like 17 or 18 songs. He plays the same ones every time, and then he'll do one cover in the middle. So I will be going to see him play the exact same songs with the exact same band, except for one song, maybe. So I don't know if it'll be worth it or if it'll like ruin my magical experience, you know, because does, he does change how he performs things a lot. But I will probably go. Wait, you've already seen him on this tour, you're saying? I saw him in Milan. Oh, that's right. On this tour. Yeah. Th- that's so this he, tour? So like it, it's tour. the same show. <laughs> yeah, so his Rough and Rowdy Ways tour, which I love 
that that record I think is really really good, and I love seeing him perform. But I would be it'd be like going to the, see the same movie twice, which I'm not opposed to necessarily. Uh, you oh. love you love seeing Dylan perform because I've only seen him perform once, and it was really underwhelming. He had absolutely no stage presence. I mean, I think he's brilliant, and I have no no uh, issues with his music, but. It was it was not a great experience seeing him perform, but of course this was maybe forty years ago. So <laughs> he has, yeah. So he has wow. a very there's different eras of his live performance, and he's trying to do very different things. So I think right now his the thing that I think is interesting about this era of touring for him is that he has he's thinking very deeply about how can I perform in a way that only a 80 plus 86 year old or maybe 85 i think he is uh how can i perform in a way that's really interesting and and fitting of someone of my age and my voice and my ability and my history and he's taking all that into account and i think what he does is really cool and interesting um so i would if people have not seen him in a long time, I would definitely recommend going. Well, to did see you enjoy that now. show in Milan? Then you did enjoy. It the was show incredible. Yeah. It was great. I, I thought it was really, really, really cool and good and inspiring. Mm-hmm. So I, I would recommend people go see him. You think that he's Dylan just would... he's just eighty two, by the way. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, he's eighty two. A lot he's more 82. tread on that tire. You think he would get tired of doing this show though, the same way over and over again, or at least the same set list? I was reading a book. There's a really great book. Um, by Greil Marcus, who I think is like one of the best uh, music writers. And he wrote a book called Folk Music, which is a biography of Dylan and seven songs or something. So he just goes through seven different Dylan songs. And uh, one of the things he was talking about is how he's trying to instantiate kind of a new American canon of music. And part of the folk tradition in doing that is to play the same things over and over and over and over and over and tweak them in little ways, uh, in subtle ways that make them interesting to him. He doesn't like singing the same song the same way twice and that was what was also really cool about the show is that in you cannot go see another 82 year old famous musician who isn't in some ways on kind of a nostalgia kick and people are wanting to hear old songs and he doesn't he played um uh when i paint my masterpiece which is a song from the 70s which is one of his best songs but he does it in a completely new way and all the other many of the other songs are new uh, and he's not about that at all. He's not invoking any nostalgia at all. He's trying to do something really interesting artistically. So, mm. unlike Frankie, Valley. I'm done plugging for Bob. No, yeah. that's unlike okay. Frankie Valli. Uh, you know, Bob Kessler, our news guy, went to see um, who's Bruce Springsteen's drummer when Springsteen was in town. Max Weinberg. Yeah. So Springsteen played like Wednesday and Friday. Thursday they were off, and Weinberg then performed himself at a separate club in town so bob went to see him and it was the exact opposite i think they literally had like a screen with songs and you could shout out songs they go, what do you want to hear and they would you know somebody says free bird everybody laughs but they were just calling out stuff and then he'd say ah, yeah we'll play that and then they'd they'd play that um and bob was pretty underwhelmed by the whole <laughs> concept you know it it didn't seem to be thought through that well and uh he he was a little disappointed he you know he said the band was great but he just didn't like that conceit for a show well uh good to talk to you guys we'll follow the mapes story at least the sentencing and talk more about that down the road and 
all of these other stories, too. And uh, one more time, thanks for listening to the Mincing Rascals. Uh, bring your friends to the podcast online as we are recording it now. But also, we hope you will join us. By the way, I'm going to ask that everybody wear gold blazers with the Mincing Rascals logo over the breast pocket. Uh, I already have a bunch of gold blazers. I'm not sure I need another one, but sure. Well, but this will have the Mincing Rascals action team uh, logo on the breast pocket. And we are going to record at Second City September... It is the 26th at 6 p.m. at the Second City. And go to wgnradio.com slash rascals to get your tickets and um, uh, limited seats. So we hope you can join us for that. Okay, Austin Bird, Eric Zorn, produced by Ben Anderson and Ashley Byhan today, as well as Pete Zimmerman, our executive producer. I'm John Williams. We'll drop another pod on you next week. Good job, boys. All right. Very good. That's fun. Yeah. Talk yeah, soon. Good to see you, Austin. Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. yeah. See you soon. Thanks. Take Bye. care. See you guys. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com.